tasked with talking about motivations for missions. And, uh, you know, it's, uh, again, just uh, taking recognition of the time of day. It's always nice to start with a little story, and this is all true, what I'm going to be telling you. Um, I, my story actually starts back in 1941. I was not alive in 1941. Uh, but uh, Pearl Harbor got bombed uh, on December 7th. And my dad, being a healthy young man in Pennsylvania, he went down December 8th, and he joined up. They found out that he was a journeyman tool and die maker. They gave him 72 hours, and they told him uh, to report back. They flew him to Pearl Harbor. Uh, they gave my dad a seven-day course in underwater welding, him and hundreds of other young men, and said, get these ships up. And uh, that's what he did, and he had other uh, parts in the war. Uh, the war was over. He got transferred to San Francisco, California, where I was born later on. And uh, later after that, he got transferred down to San Diego. San Diego, uh, Navy housing in San Diego is really, really terrible, uh, but you're really close to the ocean. So we were about two and a half miles from the ocean. So as a young man, and when we, when we lived up in San Francisco, my mom took me to Sunday school. By the time we moved down to San Diego, my dad figured I was a man. I was almost in junior high. And uh, I did not have to go to Sunday school, and so uh, surfing became my life. I could uh, store my surfboard down at the beach, hitchhike down there, uh, surf for all day long, and come back, and uh, just as long as I got my chores done. And uh, life was real idyllic. I uh, got onto the high school surf team when I was a sophomore in high school. Junior in high school, my best friend became a Christian. I was shocked. Uh, man, I knew uh, because I'd gone to Sunday school that everything we did we were going to burn in hell for. Uh, he had no Sunday school background, and, uh, he, and I, my, my world was turned upside down. Eventually, he started asking me to come out to this youth group, and I hadn't been in a church in years. I came out to uh, his youth group, though, because I saw his life changing, and uh, I remember the first time I heard the gospel from this guy, and it was a gigantic youth group. There was about 750 people in high school uh, that were there the first time I was there. The Jesus movement was sweeping all through California and other parts of the USA. And uh, I remember hearing the gospel from him for the first time, and how he did it, I'm going to encapsulate it for you. It went like this. What Christ did on that cross, there's nothing you can do to add to it. His blood pays for your sin. It's a done deal. You can't work for it. You can't earn it. You can't merit it. All you can do is fall on your knees and say, thank you, God, and accept it as a gift that it is. But you need to understand that once you accept that gift, your life is over. You have no future. You have no rights. It's all about him from that moment on. So think it through. And I did. I listened. How he shared the gospel kept me from becoming a Christian for six months because I loved my life. I loved my life. I didn't want God putting a ding in it. And uh, finally, beginning of my senior year, uh, knowing through the clear preaching and teaching of God's word, I'm going to burn in hell. I will burn in hell. And uh, I didn't want to burn in hell. I accepted Christ as my Savior. I stood up. I was overwhelmed with a deep sense of gratitude. Man, my sins are forgiven. Uh, I began to listen to him with other ears and uh, things that I'd, I had not listened to. Because when he was talking to Christians, I didn't listen. I, I knew I needed to deal with this message. And uh, I began to listen to him, and what he was, had been doing that I wasn't listening to, he was talking about the world, the world, the world, the world. There were many people that frittered away the Jesus movement in the early 70s. He did not. He was going to leverage that working of the Spirit of God to raise up young men and women and send them out. And uh, man, he's talking about Matthew 28, things that we've been hearing here. Brand new Christian. Luke 24, Mark 16, John 20, Acts 1. He's going into those passages in great detail. And um, I, I had no excuse not to do this. I've been a Christian three months, and I'm confronted with the clear claims of Christ on my life. He wants to be known to every tongue, tribe, and nation. What do I do? Well, I knew this. I didn't want to do it, and I'm scared to do it. And yet, the, honestly, the legacy of my dad 
Uh, man, what he modeled to me, he was 45 years. He joined up and he stayed in the Navy for 45 years. That legacy of commitment, you stay the course, you stay the course, you serve, you serve. And so he took an application to career missionary service when I was three months old in the Lord Jesus. I went home, I was terrified. Beads of sweat breaking out of my forehead as I read that thing. I won't go into the details. Um, finally sent it in, got accepted. It turned out they, take, they took anyone with 98.6 blood in your veins. You know, if you had a pulse, you were good. And because uh, I was sure they wouldn't take me. Uh, and I wrote out a, a, a list of two and a half pages of my sins, my baggage, my outstanding warrants in detail. That's, I bundled it all up with the application. It's, it's called shark repellent. Uh, yeah, again, they, they accepted me. And uh, so uh, a few months later, I'm on a train back to uh, San Diego, California, back to back east from San Diego. And by the way, I was just one of many uh, from our youth group. There were constantly people going out. I was one of 13 that would leave that youth group that summer. Uh, our musician here, Nathan Robinson, his parents, uh, one year later, were on that same uh, in that same training program. Served overseas for many many years. My best friend Paul uh, took that same train with me. He's still in Indonesia. Uh, people from that youth group that went and went and went because they had a youth pastor who understood it's not about building a big youth group. I lost track of the amount of translations our church youth group kids have done, the amount of churches uh, that have been planted in unreached language groups. Uh, we ended up, my wife and I, get, getting married uh, very young. I won't go into that story too much. And uh, yeah, seriously, we dated for like a week. I asked her to marry me. And then uh, a week later, she was pregnant with Brooks. And a week after that, she was pregnant with Brandon. Everything was just super speeded up. Uh, and that clock will not stop running. And, uh, and so it's now 1979. We got married in 1975. We've got these two little babies. And uh, we're at LAX and terrified. I'd never been on a short-term missions trip. Uh, man, I had this youth pastor. We called him the youth pastor from hell because nobody really liked him, okay? He taught us God's word. He challenged us consistently, burning our bridges for us. And um, I, I had a godly wife. She was raised to be expendable for her king. She understood she had godly parents who raised her as an offering to the Lord Jesus. I didn't know what I married when I married her. And we got on an airplane in LAX in 1979. Uh, Brandon was six months old. Brooks was two and a half years old. Uh, we're terrified, it's a big world back in 1979, and there's no such thing as computers in anybody's home. Uh, no cell phones. It's a different world communication-wise. Um, just to tell you a little story here. So we get on the plane. We're about to... I can't even talk to my wife or my kids. I, I'm, I'm Wilbur Milktoast, and I'm, my wife is Joan of Arc. And uh, Brooke, Brandon's sitting on her lap, and Brooks is in the middle seat. And after two and a half hours or so, I could, I could begin to breathe, you know, just like... Take deep breaths, take deep breaths, yeah. Because we had one-way tickets. We were going there for five years before our first furlough. That's the way it was back then. And finally, after a couple hours, I could begin to breathe. And then uh, spawn of Satan, Brooks, he uh, did the, the full-on Chucky move. Head spins, looks at me with red glowing eyes. And he says to me, Dad, I want to go back to Grandma's house. Oh, my gosh. Why don't you just take a dagger and stick it in my belly and carve my organs out? Uh, I was without words, without words. We got to New Guinea, finally. It was a long trip back then. Uh, first thing you had to do if you're going to be of any use in a foreign country is to learn the language of the country, which there is Melanesian. Now, my grandkids are sitting here, and our dear friends are sitting, so they understand. But for us, it was uh, rocket science to learn that language. Anyway, we accomplished that. 
and we began to make trips interior. Uh, uh, we had heard about many uh, tribal groups that were asking for somebody. Uh, we, we visited many of them, and as we were about to make a decision, uh, the leader of the region, who's now with the Lord Jesus, uh, he got out this big map of the Sepik uh, Basin, and he said, Brad, there's a group way up here. They're called the Teddies." And you guys are pretty young and healthy. <laughs> I'm also very scared. I'm not a jungle gym guy. I was born in San Francisco, raised in San Diego. I don't do jungle, okay? I didn't want to tell him that because he's treating my, me like a man at 23. And, uh, man, I want you to go look at them. He made it sound so easy. And uh, so it took a three-day journey up there. I'd never seen anybody so backwards in my life. It was terrifying. I uh, came back to the coast. Uh, my wife and I, we prayed about it for a few days. And God did not say no. And so we took that to be a yes, we're going for it. And uh, knowing that these guys needed the gospel, I went in and began to build my wife a house. Uh, we cut down these trees. We took the trees and chopped them, chainsawed them into 10-foot sections, took the bark off the tree, used that for the floor of our house. We took the leaves of the tree and used that for thatch uh, uh, for the roof of our house. Uh, cut down a big chunk of jungle and helicoptered my wife and two uh, little boys back into the jungle. That, uh, the next morning, she told me, honey, I'm pregnant. Anyway, that wasn't good news, Uh, but uh, worked hard to build an airstrip, failed at that. Uh, We hiked out and had our baby daughter hike back in, began to learn the language of the Itedi people. Uh, That would take us years, Uh, being gone from my wife days, weeks at a time, uh, hiking, hunting, traveling, eating, sleeping, starving, getting sick on the trail, uh, being gone from her days, weeks at a time, so I could learn to think and speak and communicate like an adult Itedi man Finally, in 1985, was able to begin sharing the gospel of the Lord Jesus with the Teddy people. Took us seven months. Uh, they're not, uh, they had no contact with the outside world, so we had to start from absolute scratch. And uh, finally, after seven months of teaching, we had the first people understand what the Lord Jesus Christ did on that cross. What a day. What a day. I could have died a happy man that day to see people without any chance to hear the gospel, to be able to hear and accept the gospel, to know there's eternal life in that part of the part of the world. Um, That took us seven years to see that happen. It would take us another 13 years to see those scattered, individualistic, nomadic people become the church of Jesus Christ with this word of God in their language. Uh, I say this often and I mean it. I'd do it again if I was many of your ages. Do it again in a heartbeat. What a privilege, what an honor. Uh, Starting off with all kinds of motivations and throughout that journey, many motivations in there. We'll talk about motivations today, not because there's one key motivation, but because it's a worthy discussion. I have a lot of discussions with people uh, that, that are unsure about their motivation and they're trying to get things perfect inside. Folks, you're going to move around. You're going to grow. You're going to change. Most days, the love of Christ will constrain you. But there are other motivations that we'll get into in a few minutes here. We stayed there for a little over 20 years and came back. And our organization had asked us to travel around and speak and see long-term career missionaries raised up. Uh, And that we got uh, dumped into the deep end at this camp in Northern California. It was a wonderful experience, actually. Uh, But after being 20 years living under a rock, uh, we were in a big camp uh, with 700 new high schoolers every week trying to learn how to communicate and uh, connect with high school kids at that point. We weren't young by then. Uh, still older now, and uh, every week I'd talk to these 700 high schoolers, and afterwards a bunch of them would come down, we'd talk, and some of them turned out to be uh, missionaries in the making and are still overseas. But I'll not forget one uh, interaction I had as uh, the group of high schoolers dissipated. Um, There was one of their counselors, and he was an upperclassman at one of the Christian colleges in Southern California, and uh, he waited till everybody was gone, 
And we had walked through the text of Matthew 28, Mark 16, Luke 24, John 20, and Acts 1. We made it so clear. The command of Christ and the last prophecy of Christ there on that mountainside outside of Jerusalem. We'd made it so clear to them. And he came up, and he was obviously a Bible major, and he said this. And I'd handled many questions, many reservations, many excuses. I'd heard many things by this time, but this one caught me flat-footed. He said this. I totally understand what Jesus was saying, but if I was to do it, I would only be doing it out of obedience. (laughs) And he let it hang there. In other words, my heart doesn't resonate. I'm not passionate. I'm not giddy about walking away from Southern California and heading to the mission field. And and surely, obedience alone cannot be a worthy motivation. Obedience alone can't be so blessed by God that that would be a valid motivation. I didn't know how to answer him. I'd never heard that. And all my, by this time here, a couple years of going around talking to people, I'd never heard somebody stymied over the issue of, I don't feel it, but I know obediently I should, but obedience alone can't be moving me. I pondered over that thing for a long time. Uh, that, that one just shocked me. I, I dare say, I hearken back to my dad's life and the testimony that he gave to me. He's not a believer, but he understands duty. And he modeled that to me all of my young life. And uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 15. I just want to go into one passage. We could go into 1 John and talk about the correlation between if you love God, you obey him. Love and obey. Love and obey. Obedience is not a dirty, base, low, vile motivation. God honors that. That is high in his estimation. And there's a story here that brings this out, I think, as good as any story. It's a story of the interplay between Saul and Samuel. And we'll pick up in chapter 15 of 1 Samuel. It says this, Samuel, Samuel said to Saul, I am the one the Lord sent to anoint you king over his people Israel. So listen now to the message from the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will punish the Amalekites for what they did to Israel when they waylaid them as they came up from Egypt. And here's the command that Samuel is going to give to Saul. Now go, attack the Amalekites and totally destroy everything that belongs to them. Do not spare them. Put to death men, women, children, infants, cattle, sheep, camels, and donkeys. No loopholes. None. Even though not stated, I think goats were included in this. I think it was left up to Saul to understand, I want everything that draws breath dead in the land of the Amalekites for what they did in waylaying my people. The command is crystal clear. There's no ambiguity, there are no loopholes, there's no wiggle room for Saul to make an adjustment in there. Even as our Lord spoke clearly, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, therefore go, you leave your homes, you leave Israel, you leave the land of promise, and you go to them, teaching them all things, baptizing them. There is no ambiguity, there's no, you know, that's a real easy passage to translate, Man, there are some hard passages in the scriptures to translate. Man, you get into metaphor, hyperbole, allegory. Man, you get, there are hard passages. But when Jesus speaks of his command to take my message to the ends of the earth, it's easy to translate. It's just hard to live it out as individuals and as churches. To wrap our focus around, as Kevin said yesterday morning, starting this off, this is the church's thing. As a church, 
and as individuals finding our part. The command to Saul was crystal clear. We'll skip on down to verse 7. Saul, knowing the command of the Lord, then Saul attacked the Amalekites all the way from Havilah to Shur to the east of Egypt. He took Agag, king of the Amalekites, alive, and all of his people he totally destroyed with a sword. But Saul and the army spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the cattle, the fat cows and the lambs, everything that was good. These they were unwilling to destroy completely. But everything that was despised and weak, they destroyed totally. Was Saul obedient? No, absolutely. Thank you. One person. No, he was absolutely not obedient. But think of it. Let's, let's step back and let's put ourselves in Saul's shoes. Here you've got hundreds, if not thousands, of Amalekite bodies stacked in the, in the sun. You've got donkey, sheep, cattle. You've got all this death and carnage, bodies bloating up. I won't even go into what a body looks like when it's bloating up in the Sepik region. Our people racked their people up in the sky. So I know what dead bodies look like in, in heat, okay? And after a couple days, the crow's coming down and the maggot's coming down. The, the, the horrible look of all these dead Amalekite bodies and their animals bloating up in the heat. Don't you think it'd be easy for Saul to say, wow, look at the evidence of my obedience. Look at what I've done. And be blind, as we find out, he will be blind to the evidence of his, his disobedience. Obedience is tough. Let's put ourselves in the place. And let's back up a little bit in the story. Let's put ourselves in the place of the average Jewish soldier who's been given the command to wipe out the Amalekites. So I report for duty, and my sergeant says, I want you to take this part of the wall. I want you to go, whoever's on that wall, you take him out, and then we'll deal with whoever's inside. So I take out, because God's on my side, I whip out my sword, and I slice that guy up, and I jump over the wall down into the city of the Amalekites, and then my sergeant says, okay, everything in that, behind that door, wipe them out. That, those were the orders of the day. And so I've got to break down that door, take my sword. Oh, my gosh. I just killed this 25-year-old guy on the wall. Now his wife is standing there. She doesn't even have a weapon. And I've got to run her through. Oh, my word. I hear voices in the back. And there's a 7-year-old kid. And I've got to go back there and run him through. Think about this. Oh, no, please, no. And there's a three-year-old in the back, and i got to run him through. Those were the orders of the day that came down from God himself through Samuel to Saul. Obedience goes against our grain. It, it, it causes us to do things that we don't want to do, but we are men and women under orders, and thus we do them. In this case, it's out of bounds for us today, of course. But sometimes, obviously, we're living in a missions community that says oftentimes, well, I didn't feel it. Nothing resonates with me. I'm not, I'm not high about this. This doesn't make me giddy. I get no satisfaction from this. Doesn't matter. We are men and women under orders. And Saul could not see that. And Saul, he goes into the land of the Amalekites. And what did he do? He kept Agag king alive. What did he do? He made a natural, normal adjustment. Every king, when he conquered another land or city, you always brought back the king and you dragged him into your city so you could make fun of him and throw tomatoes at him. That's what they did. Everybody kept the king alive. He made a natural, normal adjustment and God wasn't having it. I know it's a normal question for many people in their 20s. Well, if it's so clear, why isn't so-and-so doing it? Why isn't she doing it? 
Why is it me alone that's reading this? And I can't answer that question for you. I'm not going to go down that road. And I'm not saying every person that's in their 20s and 30s ought to be going overseas. I'm not saying that. But I am saying, for people that are 1A, we better have a real good reason why we did not go to our church leadership and report for duty. When our Savior's command has been crystal clear, to make a unilateral decision on our own, I don't think so. I'm not gifted. I don't want to. I'm, I, 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 I. I'm not going to go down that road any further. God was not pleased with Saul's response to his crystal clear command. So he sends Samuel. The the story is kind of funny. In verse 12, early in the morning, Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But he was told, Saul has gone to Carmel. There he has set up a monument in his own honor. And he has turned and gone on down to Gilgal. Saul is convinced of his obedience. He has self-deluded himself to where he's setting up a, a, a thing in his honor, a, a, a monument in his own honor. Man, I, I've been an obedient king. I've been an obedient king. I've been an obedient king. Finally, Samuel catches up with him. This is, this is fun to me to read this because it gives you a, a little insight. Uh, Samuel had, knew how to use sarcasm. Samuel's a pretty gifted communicator here. When Samuel reached him, Saul said, the Lord bless you. I have carried out the Lord's instructions. The problem was standing right there about 20 sheep and 20 cows that should have been wiped out. Can can you imagine? Here's these cows over there. Moo, moo, moo. Bah, bah, bah. Busted, busted, busted. Disobedient, disobedient. The evidence of his disobedience is standing right there on four hooves. 3,100 language groups right now with nothing of the gospel. Let's check ourselves. How obedient as a people of a people have we been? I remember one time uh, Beth and I hosted four different short-term mission teams that came to live with us. I'm sure my kids remember this. And uh, most of the time we really enjoyed it. Uh, once in a while we had an interesting character here or there. And one particular team, uh, we had this one fella, he got off the plane because they had to fly into us. And they all came with vim and vigor, you know, they're all in their teens and 20s. And we'd say, hey, you want to take your long uh, lunchtime nap, okay? Oh, no, I'm healthy, I'm good. I'm, you know, half of them got malaria while they were with us. They were only with us four, four weeks, but they'd get malaria. Anyway, uh, early on, though, about uh, three days into it, the team leader, and I was responsible for the teddies and the work out there. He was responsible for the team members because he came with the team itself. Uh, team leader comes up to me. He says, hey, I just want, you, want to let you know, because uh, the, the ladies would sleep in our house, in our partner's house, and the young men would sleep over in the village with the teddies. The team leader comes up. He says, I just want you to know that uh, some of uh, the young guys' clothes has gone missing. I think he felt like maybe the teddies stole, but they, they had not. Oh, man, sorry about that. Yeah, I, there's nothing I can do about that, but that's, uh, yeah, it is what it is. Uh, a couple days after that, that, my wife comes up to me. She says, honey... I, I saw so-and-so going up into the loft where our boys are, and uh, some of uh, our youngest son's underwear is missing. Ooh, gosh, okay, we got a kleptomaniac possible pedophile on our short-term missions team. So I'm, you know, him, the team leader and I are talking about what do we do. The very next day, some of the Itetis come up to me, and they don't know the team le- uh, individual's names yet, and they say this, uh, some of them said, that guy, they pointed to him, uh, We've seen them going into our houses. We've got two sets of bow and arrows, one axe, two machetes that are gone. Now you're, now you're putting people on the brink of starvation into starvation. Those tools, uh, that's how they get food. 
we got to act. And so team leader and I, we compare notes. And uh, we would always have the, the team members and us and every, you know, the, all the missionaries. Uh, we set up a plywood out in the front lawn. And early enough in the morning, when the sun didn't hit it, we'd come out and have lunch, uh, breakfast together. And uh, by this time here, the team's been there about seven, eight days. And, uh, and they're pretty groggy by now. It's tough working in the sun out there, building an airstrip or extending an airstrip. And uh, so the individual in question, we'll just call him Bob. Bob sat down. And Beth and I are sitting at the very end of this, like, you know, 20-foot set of you know, plywood uh, chunks, planks that are set down there on little uh, stumps. Beth and I, we're groggy, too. We sit down here at the very end. And... Uh, Bob comes out across the, vill- across the airship. Bob sits down over there, and he sits down across from a guy named Larry. And uh, we're looking up and down, just watching things, and Larry wipes the sleep out of his eyes, and he looks at Bob, and he says, Bob, you've got my shirt on. Oh, this is good. <laughs> Bob's like, no, 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 it's my shirt. Bob, I know my shirt. You've got my shirt on. Larry's pushing right back. Bob's pushing right back. No, 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 that's my shirt. It's my shirt. Might look like yours, but it's my shirt. Larry's had enough. Larry stands up. He reaches across the plywood, gets hold of Bob's T-shirt, and Bob's T-shirt has LK. Larry's initials stenciled onto the back of the T-shirt label, like every good American mom does. She'd marked up his T-shirt. Bob is busted. Busted. By this time here, I am laughing so hard. It's, I'm almost peeing myself, seriously. This is high drama in the jungle. You got nothing else going on. <laughs> Bob, like a jungle cat, turns on a dime. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I just don't want to do that. Blah, 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 blah. It was great. It was such a great time. Uh, busted publicly. Folks, some of you who God has spoken to are in for so much worse than that. You've known the heart of your God to be known to the ends of the earth. You don't want to do it. I totally identify. You're scared to do it. I totally identify. And those are your only reasons. Because you've seen it in God's word. You know the heartbeat of your Savior. And you can't get around it. You can't unsee what you've seen in scripture. I learned that from a radio student this year. Save yourself the embarrassment of nothing else. Save yourself the embarrassment. Submit to what the king of the universe has made so very clear. I want to be known. I want to be worshipped. I want to be honored among the nations. Oh, I'll never forget that day. Well, verse 14. Samuel said, what is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears? What's this lowing of the cattle that I hear? I love Saul's reply. He is not going to back up. He's got his narrative down. Oh, he knows what he knows. Oh, those? Saul answered. With not, not a hiccup of remorse. The soldiers brought them from the Amalekites. Not me. Those, that was the soldiers that did that. They spared the best of the sheep and the cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God. But the, the rest we totally destroyed. No, that wasn't me. And you've got to understand this, Samuel. We weren't being disobedient. We were just delaying our obedience. We're going to sacrifice them later. But God doesn't know such a term as delayed obedience. You walk in the light that you have. And the light that was delivered to you, Saul, they all die today, not later on. I don't want sacrifices from you. I want obedience. I don't want sacrifices from you. You can sense the exasperation in Samuel. Stop, just stop talking. 
He knew that his king was so self-deceived that his course of action was right. After all, he's the king and people don't push back at the king. But Samuel did. He says, stop. Let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul, ever confidently, go ahead, tell me. Bring it on. I'm the king. Samuel said, although you were once small in your own eyes, you did not become the head, <clears throat> did you not become the head of the tribes of Israel? And he sent you on a mission saying, go and completely destroy those wicked people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Pretty simple question. Well, I didn't feel like it. I wasn't passionate about killing off all these really... Why did you not obey the Lord? Obedience is big to our God. In fact, it starts there. It starts there as the Spirit of God indwells us. Go and attack the Amalekites. Destroy those wicked people. The Amalekites, make war on them until you have wiped them out. Why did you not obey the Lord? Why did you pounce on the plunder and do evil in the eyes of your Lord? Can I paraphrase that for you? What, here's what Saul said, maybe in, in 21st century terms. Samuel is saying this to his king. King, oh Saul, once you weren't the king of Israel, once you were a brand new Christian, and anything that God said to you, yes, my God, reporting for duty, you learned simple obedience because you were overwhelmed with gratitude. But now you've grown up. Now you've been a Christian for a while. You've learned how, how to maneuver around clear commands and directives from the God of the universe himself. And he says, go back. Go back to being a young man. Go back to not being so well studied to where you've got theological excuses not to pursue in simple obedience what our God has said. Go back to when you were a young man, to when you said, yes, my God, to anything that God said to you. Go back, O king. And he pleads with his king to renew his, or recover his newborn obedience to Christ. And we see Saul's hardened response, the heart, hard heart of a man who just will not come to grips with his sin of disobedience. But I did obey the Lord, Saul said. I went on the mission the Lord assigned me. I completely destroyed the Amalekites. And brought the soldiers took the sheep from the cattle and the cattle from the plunder. The best of what was devoted to God in order to sacrifice them to the Lord your God at Gilgal. I didn't do it. I obeyed, I obeyed, I obeyed. Do you see how self-deceived he is? Folks, we can talk ourselves into any course of action we want to. Or talk ourselves out of clear obedience. When I was missions pastor at my church, I had two men come into my office and explain to me how they knew God was leading them to divorce their wives. You can talk yourself into anything. You can pile up the excuses, pile up the reasons, pile up the I'm not cut out, pile up the, pile up the, pile up the, or else you walk out of a conference like this and you know, and and the spirit of God's making clear, he's already made clear before you came here. Now it's just like, totally solidified and you know what all you have to do to lose a vision of being used among one of those 3100 languages you know what you need to do you'll just get busy you'll just get busy you'll plan out next year's courses you'll continue to date a person that has no heart for this you'll just get busy and God in his mercy he uses us all in our fallenness God uses people he picks up people that have made bad decisions I'm one of them 
I've made bad decisions in my life, but to make a life-altering bad decision that will affect the course of your life and actually cause you to stand embarrassed before the Lord because the first person you're going to see when your eyes shut on that day will be the one with the holes in his hands who hung on a cross. And he'll say it nicely, but it will be said, you knew what I wanted accomplished. And you did what with your life? And you did what? Can you explain to me why? Was my word not clear? Was my desire to be known to the very ends of the earth not clear? Were you not at that point in time? And I know there are many people that age-wise, health-wise, marriage to unsafe people that, or people that haven't grown in the... I know there's many reasons that the majority of you are not in a place to do this. So please, hear me. I understand that. But there are many young, healthy people who do not have one reason not to step forward. That's a church decision to say, we don't think you're cut out. To make that decision on your own, you will look over your shoulder. And I talked to too many men and women in their 40s and 50s and 60s, and they were at a conference like this when they were in their 20s, and they could have done it, and they just got busy. They found something to do. <clears throat> but Samuel replied to Saul's last self-imposed blindness, hardness. Does the Lord want your burnt offerings and sacrifices as much as he wants your obedience? To obey is better than sacrifice. To heed is better than the fat of rams. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your sorry. I I think I've met people, actually, who are planning to live their life as they want to live it and just telling God when they get to heaven, sorry, sorry, or some version thereof. One of our children was born with a congenital birth defect. Uh, and for the first few years, we did not see it as such. But later on, as uh, this individual grew, he, it's a he. We've got three sons and a daughter. As he got a little bit older, and then uh, our daughter came along, uh, we saw this thing taking shape, and it was deeply disturbing to us. He had an absolute inability not to tease his younger sister. And uh, we tried every form of discipline, memorizing piles of Bible verses, uh, whipping him, scourging him, uh, running him over with a tractor on regular occasion, uh, attaching electric cattle prods to his nipples, shocking him, uh, and driving my wife crazy as she's trying to homeschool our kids. And I would come in at lunchtime, and I'd see my daughter curled up in a fetal position in the corner. He was Machiavellian in his ability to just drive her crazy, sometimes just with a look or the tone of his voice. And again, discipline did not do anything in the typical way. And I'm seeing my wife slowly degrade, just slowly growing old before my eyes. And so I said, honey, the next time he does it, you send them out to me in the office. And uh, man, I'm, I'm, I'm geared up. I'm amped up to deal with this situation. And uh, sure enough, about three days later, my wife, you know, she's been driven to the point of near insanity. She comes to the back of the house, and I'm sitting out here, you know, 20 yards away in the translation house, and I hear her wobbling voice, He's coming! <laughs> sure enough, a couple of minutes later, I hear the front door of our house, Everything rusts there in the jungle, so you could hear everything. The front door opening. I see my son walking down the ladder. <laughs> he knows he's going to meet Moses, and it's not going to be good. 
<laughs> and he walks down the lawn. <laughs> Elbows or shoulders just gyrating. He walks across the lawn to get to the translation house. He walks up the ladder to the translation. <laughs> oh, you're toast. You're toast. Uh, he comes in to my translation area of the little shed that we had there. And he's, I'm sorry, Dad. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, and he's looking at me with these big brown eyes all watering and stuff like that. And... and and I realize I'm falling into his tractor beam. He, and he's worked his mother for months with this. <laughs> Big brown eyes. <laughs> and I'm, I'm getting sucked into his tractor beam. You know, and, and I feel it. And I had to do something. I, I literally I almost had to grab myself and just, no. <laughs> no. And, he's, and I said to him, I said, son, in this area, I'll never hear from you. I'm sorry again. Because you have no intention of changing. The shaking shoulders stop. He looks up at me with a smile. Busted. Busted. You could have the Lord Jesus. I'm convinced the Lord Jesus himself could come down that aisle. Flowing robes, big long nose, leather sandals. Picture them however you want. Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Malaysia, Indonesia, China, Nepal. He could speak to you audibly. I don't know. I don't know. It's exactly what Moses did. The burning bush. Take off your shoes, Moses. You're standing on holy ground. He knew it was God, and he takes his shoes off. Then, now I want you to go back to Egypt. What's he do? He starts playing 20 questions with God. Uh, I don't know your name. Uh, my tongue doesn't work real good. God had to slam him to the mat and tap him out, and he did. Absolute clarity is not the issue. It's our will to obey. Because the word of God is crystal clear. You've heard it from great Bible expositors this week. It's the will to obey, to say no to your passion. I'm so grateful for that youth pastor teaching us. You were bought with a price. You're owned by another. You have no right to do what you want to do. Your only obligation is to find out what his dream, his goal, his passion, his ambition, his desire is, and to spend every last breath you have living that out. Forget about your dream. Forget about your goal, your passion. His dream, his goal, his passion. That's the only thing that matters. And to live your lives, guys, to embark on this in your late teens, early 20s, early 30s, and in your 40s, to rearrange your parenting. I didn't even know it was possible to do such a thing as the way my wife's parents raised her. Raising her as expendable for her king. I didn't know who I married. As the church of Jesus Christ... We move into smaller homes. Think what you want about Francis Chan. He's a dear friend. But over the years, I knew him when he was up in Simi Valley. He moved four times, every time into a smaller home, into a smaller home, into a smaller home. He had the lowest payroll on the church staff. Uh, modeling, modeling, modeling. Doing that in the right, not, 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 to, not to be known. I'm not trying to boast on Francis and lessen his, that's not the point of this. But folks, to, to, to think in terms of, and there are some in our church, some men, one of them's here tonight, this afternoon, we're not going to retire. We're going to work till we drop to see our Savior's command accomplished. We can't work as hard. We're going to have to work differently. But we are all about this. And let me say something. I shared this, this morning. Um, our youth pastor was not just the Great Commission, the Great Commission. You know what he did on Saturdays? He took us to Mexico so we could wash orphans. 
And on Sundays, he took us to a handicapped home and he showed us how to bathe people in their 30s and 40s and change their diapers and wash their hair. He lived a life that was worth modeling, worth following. Uh, As the church of Jesus Christ, to recapture this at every level, we love our community and we are all about seeing our Savior known to every tongue, tribe, and nation. It can be done. I have loved being here and seeing a church here, a church there, waking up to the honor and privilege. And we talk a lot about that with Radius students. And we know they come there uh, with all kinds of motivations. Uh, and over the course of their journey on the, on the mission field, over the course of the decades that they will be there, they will go through many motivations. Lord willing, the majority of their motivation will be the love of Christ constraining me. The privilege it is to get honor back to the king of the universe who is worthy of such honor. That motivation will make your days blessed. But if we don't have a bedrock laid of obedience, when I'm not seeing him, when I'm not feeling his presence, I'm still staying the course. I'm making him known. I'm living in the mundane. I'm having my time in the word of God. I'm giving honor to him in the way I love my wife, the way I raise my kids in front of these people that are watching me 24-7. Folks, to recapture this as a church, as individuals, giving our Savior and his commission, and you can't separate the two. I've had too many discussions with people. Well, your thing is missions. My thing is worship. I'm bold enough to reply now. I didn't always do this. I would just, okay. But now my response will be, who are you worshiping? What did he say? You cannot separate your Savior from his commission. It's like trying to separate my wife from the four children the Lord gave to us. Well, I love you, Beth, but I just don't know about these kids of yours. Don't try it. They're inseparable. And to love my Savior, to want to be honoring to my Savior and not imbibe of his desire to be known, can't be done. Can't be done. You're creating a different Jesus. You're creating a theological statement that you can get to know more academically. But he has spoken. He's made his will and desire abundantly clear. Turn back, if you would, to Acts chapter 1. I'll close here. Obedience. It is not a motivation to be denigrated, lessened, or thinked upon as unseemly. Obedience, our following of the Lord Jesus Christ, must be based in that. And praise God, it elevates to other, loftier, more fulfilling motivations. It does. I don't don't want to denigrate those or talk that obedience is the only thing. I think this is important here. Chad touched on this this morning. Other speakers have too. The very, 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 very last time Jesus was with his disciples before he bodily ascended. It's important to understand this. He has said some version of this in Matthew 28. Chad went into good detail on that this morning. He said this, but Matthew 28 was on a mountainside in Galilee. This is a mountainside outside of Jerusalem. It's a a completely different location. He gathered the disciples with him. It says this in verse 6. So when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? That was a great question. They'd studied their Bibles. Based on many Old Testament prophets, following the coming of the Messiah, Israel would be restored to national greatness. There was nothing silly or juvenile about their question. But Jesus knows something. Their question is valid, but Jesus' response is going to be not, not going there. We're not having a Bible study on end times. We're not going to study eschatology. It's not because eschatology is bad. 
That's good. But it's not central. It wasn't the thing he wanted ringing in their ears. He wasn't going to give them a Bible study on how to be a good parent, how to be a good spouse, how to be a good employer. Those are all relevant topics. We need to live in light of the teachings of God's word in those areas. They want to have a Bible study in end times. They want to study eschatology. His response is, not now. Not now. There's something much more specific I want ringing in your ears. And so he replies in verse 7. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. Don't need to know that. I'm not going down that road. And then his capstone. But you, and this is a prophecy, and it will be accomplished. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. That's been accomplished. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem. Accomplished. And on all Judea. Accomplished. And Samaria. Accomplished. And to the ends of the earth. Not accomplished. And then, as an exclamation point, as the mic drop of all mic drops, what's he do? After he said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and the cloud hid him from their sight. To the ends of the earth. You don't think that's what, he, that's what he wants resonating in their ears? To the ends of the earth. You're my people. To the ends of the earth. Leave Israel. Get going. To the ends of the earth. Do you want to live life in the crosshairs of God's will? To the ends of the earth. Find your place. Many of you are too old to go there. I would not encourage you to do that. Find some of these young people. Commit to supporting them. Commit to raising your kids to doing this. Commit to making your church a healthy, sending church. No one person can do it all. But man, talking to some people this morning about how to make up good missions committees. I know the energy that's here. For you guys even to be here at the conference. You care about this. I know you do. Dial it in. Get more of a fine point on it. And I will say this. Say no to peripherals, not because they're evil. Jesus said no to a peripheral topic here, not because it was evil, but because it was distracting to the thing he wanted accomplished. I want to be known among every tongue, tribe, and nation. And so our church isn't going to do everything it could do. That was one of the challenges of our church. And Nathan is a missions pastor of our church in San Diego. Man, the patience he showed to take our church from doing a host of things in the missions world, we're about the Great Commission, and we've got a laser focus on it. And we appreciate people who differ than that. If other churches want to do something else, that's fine. But our church really is about the Great Commission, and people that come forward from our church to be a part of missions, they're going to be a part of taking the gospel to one of those unreached language groups. Find your place. I'm looking at a lot of folks who were there last night, about 40 people uh, that are interested at some level. Uh, I'm sure after the night's discussion, some are like, oh my gosh, I'm actually thinking of doing this. I remember that point in my life. Let me tell you this, folks. For the folks that are in the, the crosshairs of this decision, the hardest decision is the first one. There will be many other hard ones in your life, in your career, in your future. But the hardest decision is this one here that says, this is what I was planning to do. This is what I got my degree for. And I'm walking away. And I'm I'm embracing the words of Jesus. That's the only basis I have because I don't want to do this. But I can't get away from how clear he has been. And I'm going that direction there. That's the hardest decision you'll ever make. There will be other hard ones on the journey. But the first one's a big one. The potential in this room, the potential in this room, man, solid churches, 
individuals that have been raised in great churches, let's not let it be only potential. Man, let's step forward to do this. I know there's tons of Radius students out there. They can walk you through the process. All those Radius staff guys will walk you through the process. Uh, We'll all be there at the meet and greet tonight. Guys, let's not just listen to God's word. Let's know that we have responded to God's word. Find your place in the Great Commission and live it out with great diligence. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these men and women, brothers and sisters that are here from these incredible churches. Thank you for them taking time out of their lives these last couple days, Lord, to hear things that they are already convinced of and get a finer point on them. Help them as they go back to their churches to be winsome and gracious and patient as churches develop a more honed-in focus on accomplishing your last words. Bless the rest of this day, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.